I'm going to read this morning in Holy Scripture, Psalm 10. Psalm 10, like many psalms, is a prayer, a prayer to God. This particular prayer follows a prayer in chapter 9, which really takes the form of thanksgiving, and thanksgiving to God for His justice, for His ability to right the wrong and punish the evil. Psalm 10 is a prayer for that. It follows thanksgiving for that, but it's a prayer for that. Prayer that God judge especially what we might summarize as the murderer, the man who oppresses and therefore really murders those who are unable to protect themselves. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in their devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing, and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Rise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked condemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief in spite, to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. We read that far in God's holy word. This morning we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 40. Importantly and significantly, one of the longer Lord's Days on the commandments. What doth God require in the Sixth Commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof. 
such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. Indeed, he counts all these as murder. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness toward him, and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies, and that we do good even to our enemies. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are two things that I want to call to your attention by way of introduction on this Lord's Day. The first is that the subject matter, those that murder and those who are murdered, is not one that concerns only the wicked and ungodly outside the church. In fact, this is not the main focus even of the Holy Scriptures when they treat these subjects. As we found out reading Psalm 10, the Bible speaks frequently about the murderer, those that oppress, those that hurt and harm and ensnare, so that even prayers are made for their destruction and for God to judge them. But even when that occurs in Scripture, the focus is not on those outside the church, but in the church. Perhaps you think to yourself when you read those psalms that they're only psalms that are talking about the ungodly out there somewhere and their behavior, and certainly there is application there. It is amazing, but shouldn't surprise us that murder characterizes the ungodly wicked. Simply read the Scriptures. Read what characterized the wicked world before God destroyed it in the flood. It was murder, violence of every kind. And God said, that's enough. Do a survey of the history of mankind. You will find many evils, but the evil of all evils running through the history of mankind is murder. Even murder that's sanctioned in the form of war. Murder after murder. But we make a mistake if we think to ourselves, well, that's just out there and this commandment's just talking about those people out there and these prayers that are made in Scripture are only talking about things out there. The first, the first explicit sin after the fall recorded in Scripture was murder. Can killing Abel murder in the church and he killed him because he was righteous so that's what we need to remember this morning Psalm 10 applies to this place to this church to the church and what goes on in the church God is speaking about what you and I do and what goes on murder that's the first thing that I desire to bring to your attention the second is that this Lord's Day encompasses all sin. I'll expand on that and make that more explicit as we go on, but right at the outset, it's important to take note that this commandment summarizes all the others, that this commandment expresses negatively the opposite of what all the commandments in the second table are. That's evident when you read the Lord's Day on what God forbids. It's not simply the actions and outward deeds of murder, but it's cause. And there are causes listed, and in the middle of that list you cannot help but notice is hatred. Over against that hatred is love, what God commands in the second table. What that indicates is that any violation of any of the commandments is murder. And as we go through, we're going to see that also, I hope. And if I do not make that explicit enough, keep it in the back of your mind. 
that when a man steals from his neighbor, when he covets his neighbor's goods, when he commits sexual sin, when he dishonors, he's murdering. And not only that, but this is sin against God. That all murder is really against God. It's a killing of God. It's an attempt to kill God. It's an expression of supreme hatred for God. You cannot just hate your neighbor. You must necessarily hate God, which tells us a lot also about this commandment. Consider with me this morning God's condemnation of murder. We notice in the first place the evil, in the second place the cause, and finally the deliverance. First the evil. I want to remind you something about the law in general before we proceed, which explains the title of the sermon, God's Condemnation of Murder. Did that with this particular commandment to remind us of the seriousness of God's commandments. One of the problems with murder in the church, the toleration and the minimization of murder in the church is we don't understand as we ought that God condemns it and condemns every form of it. Right here is where it's a good place for us to remember what the confessions teach, what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, which we are all convicted. That we have not kept a single one of the commandments if we think we do, if we think we're better than others, if we think that murder is just something that happens to us or happens out there or is committed by a few particular individuals that might be disciplined in the church for murder, guess again. We do have to remember that this commandment covers all the commandments. That should be evident if you simply look at the explanation of this commandment in the Heidelberg Catechism, and notice that among the forms of murder are to dishonor someone. If you dishonor someone, you have murdered them. You may not have touched their life. You may not have touched their person or their body, but you have murdered them. Why do I bring that up? Because what was the last commandment we considered? Honor your father and mother. So when children, for example, dishonor their father and mother, they are murdering them. They have murdered them. When someone dishonors the offices in the church, speaks evil about them or about the men who hold them, gossips and backbites, dishonors, they are murdering those office bearers. When a husband does not respect his wife as he ought, and he shows that by his language and attitude and deeds toward her, he dishonors her as his body and his bride, the one he ought to love. He murders her. As I pointed out, the cause of all murder is hatred, and all violation of every commandment is hatred. Because it's not love for God or the neighbor. Therefore, that necessarily follows. So it's a good place for us to remember that. Because we often refer to some of these sins. And we need to be reminded they're murder. For example, if an individual sexually abuses someone, not now just commits fornication or adultery, which are murder. When one fornicates, he murders someone. He may be murdering the parents of the young gale that he's fornicating with, or he's murdering the husband of the wife that he's committing adultery with. But we often refer to other sexual crimes as abuse, Some have criticized that term. Some have criticized that term because they say it's not biblical or confessional. Others because it minimizes sin, perhaps. 
The term is actually a good one. It is found in Scripture, and it is associated with what it is, murder. And if we think it minimizes the sin, that somehow because we call it perhaps abuse, it's not murder, that's not true. And we should correct that in our thinking. But what that term does express is that certain sins against others abuse a position. They misuse certain gifts and abilities that God gives to someone and uses them in the service of sin, in a service that harms someone, and often, frequently. And that's what that term is intended to set forth. Let there be no mistake that if I or this consistory would use that term with regard to a sin like this, we regard it as murder. And if someone is disciplined for such a sin, perhaps whether spousal abuse or sexual abuse, that will be one of the sins that they are disciplined for. And now is an appropriate time perhaps to remind the congregation that there is an individual in this congregation who is under discipline for murder and for a reason because that's what the sin is. So, coveting, we may think lightly of it. We're just seeking that which we do not have. God considers it murder. Ninth commandment, we're going to get to the ninth commandment, and you cannot help but notice that all the sins listed there, gossip and backbiting, are all murder. Why is it important? Well, as we go on with this commandment, one of the sad, sad things that goes on that shows our depravity and how we're all guilty of this is that oftentimes, even as we're pointing out the murder of others, while we're complaining perhaps to the church or even to friends, whether we do this publicly or privately, whether we're just simply doing it in our heart, we're pointing out real murder that's going on. A child who is being bullied by another child. That's murder, you know. Teachers and school boards have to take that seriously. And anyone who's been bullied at school knows it's murder, whether it be done by word or fists. One child is murdering another one. One child is abusing the fact that he's bigger and stronger or more popular to make another bleed inside, to destroy his soul and his well-being. Bullying is murder. But words, we will complain to others about the murder of others. They've mistreated us with their words. They've mistreated us with their deeds. They've done this or they've done that. And it's true. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be taken seriously. But then often, even as we're complaining, we're busy murdering. How easy is it to complain about what someone has said about us and done to us? And even as we're airing our complaint, we're, we're filled with real hatred and a desire for revenge, which is not the same as a desire for justice or the prayer that we made, but a real despising and hatred. And we cover that up and don't think much of that either. Steal from your neighbor? That's murder. Now why is that? Well, it's not simply because underlying all murder is hatred, and every violation of the commandments of God, which are to love your neighbor, are hatred, but because of what murder is. Murder... <clears throat> is the unauthorized taking of someone's life. It is to take a life when you have no right to take a life. That's what murder is. And biblically and confessionally, the idea is that if you touch anything, 
if you harm anything, if you take away anything that God has given to that neighbor, it's as if you touch their life. You do touch their life. You affect their life. You effectively kill them. That's why. In fact, oftentimes, that's why we steal. We'll steal someone's neighbor's property because we hate them. We hate them in our heart. And we know full well that that's going to injure and harm them. But we don't care. That's why we say what we say. In fact, I think oftentimes when we say what we do about other people, we show we know full well that we're murdering them. Even while we're complaining about their murder of us, we're murdering them because we try to cover it up. We, we dish out a compliment that's got a knife in it. We say something to somebody that we know is going to get back to them. The one, the real target. So that's what's going on with murder. You're harming and injuring the life that God has given them. And that shows, too, the seriousness of murder. The seriousness of murder is that all such sins are never simply against an individual or a person, but always against God. And there our self-righteousness needs to be destroyed. You see, the reason why murder characterizes the ungodly and why everything that we do that's sinful may be characterized as murder is because ultimately it all leads back to God. It's why we do what we do. Behind it all is not simply that I hate my neighbor, but I hate God. I think God has made a mistake. I think God has made a mistake when he gives that neighbor all those goods and deprives me of them. God made a mistake when he allowed that neighbor to murder me. I have the right to say what I'm going to say because they deserve it. I could go on and on, beloved, all the different ways. But the fact is, all murder that we commit, the horror of it is not simply what it does to the neighbor. And that needs to be emphasized too. But also God And here's another thing that's worth remembering. Why does the commandment speak of murder? It uses the word kill, but everyone knows, as the catechism makes clear, that it's talking about murder. So why the commandment not to murder? And here God is showing something very important, something that we forget, which is we minimize sin. We don't think much of our sin. We excuse our sin We do the very same thing that we read about in Psalm 10. Ah, God doesn't really see that. God doesn't consider it what we do. It's relatively minor compared to what was done to me. Besides, God's not really doing anything about it. So God must not care. That's often our attitude. But what it belies is we don't really see it as murder. Now, as soon as we use that term, that's a strong term. It's like using the term drunkard instead of substance abuse. Someone who abuses alcohol is really a drunkard. That's what they are. Someone who commits an affair is a fornicator. That's what they are. And someone who abuses somebody else, either with their words or their deeds, whether they bleed or not, it's murder. That's what God is pointing out. That's what we have to remember. That's what we forget. We like to categorize things. We like to take all these sins and all these evils and what we do to others and we categorize them. And in our mind, they're not serious unless someone bleeds. Unless someone actually sticks a knife in the back or hits somebody in the skull with a hatchet or sticks a bullet through their forehead, well, yeah, it's sin. Perhaps. God flips the script. And said, no. No, when you type that email, and when you hit send to that Facebook post, which covers up all your hatred, you, it comes forth. You put the bullet in their head. You killed them. That's murder. You have to see it for what it is. When a man speaks unkindly and harshly and angrily at his wife, 
You have to visualize him taking a knife and plunging it into her heart again and again and again and again and again. That's what you have to see. Because that's what actually is going on. Though he may never touch her. That's what's being condemned here. And that is why I used it for the title. Here's a good place for us to remember that God condemns the sin. He doesn't simply forbid it. He doesn't simply say, don't do it. He doesn't simply say that it's wrong, but he condemns it. That's what the law does. It condemns sin and sinners. And right here is a good place for us to remember that God abhors all the causes of this sin and the sin itself. And very especially because it is the summary it is the summary of how we deal with our neighbor it is the summary of every single commandment and all such murder is against god the first table of the law so when we say god condemns it what god is saying is this if you murder your neighbor i'm going to kill you let that sink in if you take your neighbor's life Not only if you take your neighbor's wife and his goods, but if you harm his reputation, if you gossip and backbite about your neighbor, steal his goods, dishonor his position or her position, you kill them, and therefore you will die. And now, not just die, but die a death from which you will not escape. It is God saying, I do not live with murderers. I want nothing to do with murderers. There will be no murderers that live with me, that fellowship with me, that associate with me. There is no place in my communion and fellowship for those who hurt other persons in my fellowship. God condemns it in the strongest possible terms. And we need to remember that because the murderer always excuses his sin by imagining otherwise. There is a reason why in Psalm 10, the thoughts of the murderer toward God are always brought up. And you may say to yourself as you read that, well, there's a man who doesn't believe in God. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, this is a man who knows about God. This is a man who understands God. In in fact, if you read that, you will discover that he has thoughts about God. Now, he says there is no God, but the idea is there's no God effectively because God's not going to do anything about this. God's going to overlook this. God's, in fact, not going to be able to do everything about it. Not so. God observes, as the psalmist points out, every form of murder, stealing from the poor, taking the house from the widow, ambushing the child as they walk down the street to abuse them. It's all there in the psalm. And God deals with it. God will deal with it. Let there be no mistake. Now, if I haven't made myself clear that all these outward deeds, gestures, words, hands, feet, whatever, that whenever it's used in the service of sin, whenever it takes from someone that which God gave them, whether it be their life or their dignity, their body or their soul, God also hates the causes thereof. That's an amazing statement in the Catechism. When it says, well, it only speaks about murder. And then it says in forbidding murder, God teaches us that He abhors the causes thereof. That is, He condemns that too. And notice those are all matters of the heart. If you want to know why we say what we say and why we do what we do, the answer is there's something wrong with your heart. And if you look in that heart, you're going to see, number one, hatred. Hatred. Real hatred. What is hatred? Hatred is the opposite of love. That's how you may think of it. I'm not going to get into now the various forms and expressions, but simply point out that hatred ultimately is to desire evil. Harm. That you do not 
want to be with that person, to live with that person, have anything to do with that person, and therefore you wish their harm. You will not give yourself to that person in any form or fashion because, well, that love is to desire the good, to desire the fellowship, the blessedness of another, to even give yourself for that. But the Catechism moves on, talks about things like envy. Jesus was murdered out of envy. If you say to yourself, well, I wouldn't do that, guess again. We're all prone to that. Even ministers, by the way, find a lot of envy there. Even envy among the elders. While we envy the gifts of this man to preach or the gifts of that man to do theology, we we envy the the flock that this one has versus the one I have. And we can stoke those fires pretty good ourselves. We envy in the pew. Kids envy on the playground. We even disguise our envy as praise and honor, but it's actually envy. We wished we could jump that high. We wished we could read books like that. We, we wished we got better grades like that. We wished we had richer parents. We wished we had a more wonderful family. Envy. Not just covetousness, but envy. Real envy lies behind much murder. It even, it even happens with regard to murder itself. You'd be surprised. Someone was murdered in a certain way, and they become jealous and envious of the fact that others who were murdered get more attention than they do. That the church or other individuals seem to care and concern about the way that person was murdered and not me. And so we go on the rampage of murder ourselves. There's more anger and desire of revenge. There are righteous angers. There is a righteous desire for revenge, even as there's a righteous hatred. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. But our problem is not with those things. Our problem is that we use those as an excuse to murder. Murder is always justified. Everybody who murders wants to justify it by authorizing it. The Protestant Reformed churches right now are being murdered in papers and off pulpits. It's claimed to be the opposite of murder. It's authorized. Why? Because we deserve it. We're heretics. You can say whatever you want. We're wicked. You can say whatever you want. I'm not so. Even scriptures speak about that. Even when someone deserves certain punishments and chastisements, it has to be done in a righteous way. And oftentimes, even when we claim to be doing things with righteous anger, it's everything but righteous. Just go to a home and look. Look at the discipline. Look at how the authority is used, and you'll discover that many times it's anything but righteous. The anger is self-righteous anger. Discipline that's administered because the child hurt the feelings of the parent, embarrassed them in public. It shows it's unrighteous because there's no exercise of grace, no patience, no long-suffering, all these gifts of the Spirit that we're going to talk about. And so that's where our focus ought to be. It's one of the things we ought to keep in mind when we talk even about murder in the church. We can deal with murder in the church. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But one thing we ought to remember is that all murder has its source in the heart. And you cannot stop the murder unless you can stop what's going on in the heart. The heart must change. The heart must be different. The hatred must be replaced with something else. Instead of envy, there, there has to be something else. Instead of anger, there has to be something else. Always understand that. I don't have time to explain that too much to you, but we did talk about it not so long ago with regard to the book of Ephesians and how, why when Scripture comes to us, it doesn't simply say, now don't do, but now do. It's why the Catechism here in this Lord's Day gives not just the negative, but the positive. It doesn't only set forth what God condemns and abhors and hates, but what God loves and desires and wants. There's a reason for that. 
And the reason for that is it is impossible to hate someone when you love them. The root problem of the man who abuses his wife is that he does not love her. Oh, he may try to smooth things over, stab his wife, wound his wife, destroy his wife with his mouth, with his attitude and behavior, and then say, well, I love you. Oh, how I love you. I love you so much. He's lying through his teeth. It's impossible to hate someone when you love them. And when we find hatred in our heart, which we do, what happened was, is we forgot to love them. Love disappeared for an instant, we might say. It's impossible to be unrighteously angry at someone when you rejoice with them. It's impossible to be envious of your neighbor when you're content. It's impossible to murder when you love. Don't we see that? The real horror of murder is not simply that we're sinning. That sins that God condemns, sins that God condemns to hell. But it shows we don't love. We run around saying we love our neighbor, and we love our minister, and we love our elders, and we love our husband, and our love our children. And then we do what we do. And it all shows, no you don't. No you don't. We come to church, and we sing about how much we love God. We tell everybody about how much we love God. And then we go home, and we're mad at God. And often mad at God because someone murdered us. Someone hurt us. Someone harmed us. There is an appropriate place when there's murder going on, abuse going on, things that aren't addressed, injustices to be concerned to want those righted. But one goes to God in prayer ultimately for that. And there's really not even anything wrong with asking God why He's not addressing it. Why dost thou stand afar off? O Lord, why is it that ministers and elders in an entire denomination are being murdered right now? Does not God see? Why is it that little children have been murdered by office bearers and teachers? Why does God stand afar off and not seem to deal with it? But you see, that has to go to God. It has to go to God for a reason. And the reason is that there is deliverance, and deliverance only in God. I want to stress that this morning. Deliverance. Deliverance in God and by God. What is the deliverance? What is the cure? What is the solution, beloved? Well, I with you could probably list a thousand ways to fix, to stop, to end. But I'm going to summarize them all as one word. Well, three. Love. Love of God. The deliverance... The antidote, the fix, the cure for all murder is the love of God, and only the love of God. Why is that? Why is that the case? Because I say so? No. It's the only antidote to murder, because all murder is hatred. And only one thing can replace hatred. Only one thing can fix hatred. And that's the love of God. It's the opposite of all hatred. The opposite of the hatred of man for God and hatred of man for man is God's love. That's it. Period. End of story. The man who abuses his wife, that is, murders her, cannot be fixed. That situation cannot change, will not change, unless fundamentally he is filled with the love of God. It also shows when he's doing that, he's not filled with the love of God. It ought to make sense also because the love of God is the only thing that can penetrate down to the heart. It's the only thing that can access the source of all our murder. Deeds can't do that. Punishments can't do that. Chastisements can't do that. The law of God even really can't do that. It can't. It exposes our sin. And it sets forth the way we ought to walk, especially 
as redeemed and sanctified believers. It says, this is the way God will have you work. But how does God do that? He fills our heart with His love. Because it's the only thing that can get down to that heart. How does God do that? Well, ask yourself, wherein is the love of God manifest? Where is it revealed? And the answer is in Jesus Christ. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. That's right, us. I who have murdered you, you have murdered me. God manifested His love toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. 1 John 4, verse 9. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, replace that word sinners with murderers, while we were yet murderers, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. This is a gracious love that's not only manifested and revealed in Jesus Christ, but it's only imparted and given through the Spirit of Jesus Christ through faith. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There's no law against them. You cannot possibly show enough love and express enough joy and have enough peace or be long-suffering enough. There's no law against it. Live in it. The Spirit of Christ, you see, is a spirit of love. That's one thing that shows how horrible our sins really are. Because when we sin that way, when we do these things, it's the exact opposite of the Spirit of Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ doesn't do those things. The Spirit of Christ is the same Spirit by which God sent Christ. It's manifesting Christ. The love of God is all revealed right there. And when Christ then imparts His Spirit, it will be that kind of Spirit. That's what makes this so sad, as well as disgusting in the church. We ought to be Spirit-filled. We claim to be Spirit-filled. If we say that we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the one who suffered and died for our sins, that means the Spirit of Christ is in you, and the Spirit of Christ does not murder. He cannot murder. He will not murder. The Spirit of Christ is a spirit of love. Love for God, love for the neighbor. It's a spirit that's gracious, that's good, that's long-suffering, that's gentle, that's kind. Just remember that. It means that even when someone murders me, when someone murders me, I don't murder them back. I put up with it. I respond with gentleness or goodness. Even when there's injustice, which there is, it's long-suffering. That is always what has characterized believers and Christians throughout history. Because that's always been the church. This has always gone on in the church, sadly. Now there is also a partial deliverance in this life. God, in His grace and in His love, appointed two separate institutions and gave them each swords to deliver from this in this life. There's the state. It's mentioned in the Lord's day. God gives to the state the sword. That is corporal punishment. We confess, we believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed, because of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained. For this purpose, he has invested the magistracy with a sword for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them do well. God doesn't do that in his grace for all men, but he does it in his grace for the church. Because peace and order and the restraining of murder is necessary for the calling and the gathering and the thriving of the church. And where this is done appropriately by the state, God grants peace and safety and joy in that land. That's real. And where the state refuses, God gives them over to murder. 
That's his punishment. That's his justice being worked out. He gives them over to murder in their own land, murder of their own children, murder of their own people in the streets, and ultimately, often, destruction by murder in war. Then there's Christian discipline, the sword that's given to the church. Even as the state has the calling to exercise the sword toward murder, so also the state is given, the church is given Christian discipline. And keep in mind, those two are not one or the other. Sometimes it's even both. In fact, our confessions recognize that there may be times when the church forgives a murderer in its midst and turns that murderer over to the state to be executed with death. You see, even though all deeds are murder, some are also crimes. Crimes against the laws of the state. And just because the church has a sword, it doesn't ignore the sword of the state or try to skirt it. It's why it is the position of this pastor, and I believe your consistory, that all crimes, whether committed by a husband against his wife or parents against their children or an office bearer against a child, will be reported to the state. They're crimes, and they must be punished by the state to restrain the dissoluteness of men, including men in the church. This is one of the marks of the true church, that it exercises discipline in, now notice, punishing sin, not just chastising sin, but punishing it. Some sins, even sins in the church, desire, deserve punishment. Discipline isn't simply in the hopes of working repentance, but punishing. There's consequences to sin. But it's also done to affect repentance. And without it, there wouldn't be repentance. But this is only partial deliverance in this life, beloved. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Number one, there's simply the inability to judge righteously. There's only one who can judge righteously. Even the best elders and the best ministers can't always judge righteously. They wish they could sometime. But all sin is in the heart, and all they have to do is judge from outward actions. And there's not only that, but they're weak. They're men that make mistakes. They make mistakes in judgment. It's not always sin. Sometimes it's sin, too. Partial deliverance in this life because elders... Fathers and mothers and others, even you in the church, we're a respecter of persons. We're prone to minimize sin. We're prone to minimize sin because we want to minimize our own sin. Even when we love Jesus Christ, we don't love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have our depravity as long as we live. And that's exactly why the Bible, along with telling us how we ought to live and the way it ought to be in the church, commanding the church to discipline and reminding the church that when you don't discipline just like the world, you will be overrun with murder. And perhaps that's something for the PRC to ask ourselves. Why is it that we right now are being murdered? Why is it that professors and ministers and elders are being murdered openly? Perhaps it's because we've allowed so much murder in our own midst. Perhaps it's because we so minimized what was going on in living rooms. Perhaps what's being said was said long ago in living rooms and in dining rooms and coffee shops. Maybe it's because it's still going on. We bristle at the murder of ourselves, but again, we're busy murdering others, including those who murder us. So the Bible always says, with regard to all this, patience, long-suffering, meekness, gentleness, because true and perfect justice cannot come, just like you cannot be sinless and the church cannot be perfect this side of the grave. Christ must come. And when Christ comes, the first thing He does will judge. That's important. It's not to create a new heavens and earth, but it's to raise us in our bodies so that we can be judged for what we did in our bodies. And there's a warning there. If you murder in your body, 
and you murder others, and you do not repent of that sin and go to Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, God will destroy you everlastingly. He condemns murder. And there will be no place for murderers in the kingdom of heaven. There simply isn't. We can be thankful that our life in this murderous earth and in our murderous bodies right now is short. In the eternal life, in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no murderer because Jesus is the righteous judge. Then all wrongs will be righted. Things that were overlooked and not dealt with, things that were done in weakness or in sin, things spoken here and there, He will judge. And He will judge righteously because He knows the heart. He knows what's there. He knows who it is who truly loves Him and their neighbor, who are sorry for their sins, sorry for the murder done to them, and who dealt with other murders as they ought. So, beloved, repent. Go to God, this God of love, this God who sent Jesus Christ even while we were yet sinners to pay for all our murder, and believe He will forgive you there. And forgiving you gives you and will give you a spirit of love so that more and more you do indeed love Him and your neighbor. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, forgive us. Forgive us our sin. Forgive us our sin as individuals, the sins we have committed as a church, the sins we commit as elders, even as pastor, the sins we commit as parents and children, all of which are murder. And O Lord, judge. Judge righteously. Convict, chastise, punish, as well as forgive. O Lord our God, be merciful and gracious unto us and give us peace. Peace that is free of murder. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.